0: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Diabesity. It's the combination of diabetes and obesity. It can be a deadly combination if left untreated. But what are the criteria and how is someone treated differently if they have both conditions? Along with a couple of other things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and more. Well, we've got some answers for you today. We have Dr. Alan Parsa, endocrinologist at Queen's Medical Center, West Oahu, along with Dr. Robert Eager, bariatrician with the Queen's Comprehensive Weight Management Program. And we're going to explore the diagnosis of diabetes, what it means, and how it might be affecting someone you love, and what can be done about it. As always, our conversation is your conversation, and you can join us at any time at 941 3689 Toll-free 877-941-3689. Let's talk a little bit first. Dr. Allen, Dr. Robert, thanks for coming in on a busy Monday.
1: Well, thank you for
2: having us. Yeah, thank you.
0: Now, diabetes, a lot of folks haven't heard what that means. Can you define it for me?
2: Sure. So, d- diabetes is the, uh, having diabetes in the presence or due to obesity.
0: So it's diabetes because you're overweight, more than overweight. You've reached a level of of obesity. Yes. So if you weren't, you probably wouldn't have the diabetes. Yes. The presumption. Okay. And has this been long, around for a long time, Dr. Allen? Is this a new term? Did you did you make it up recently, or has it been around for like you know, a couple of decades or so?
1: It's actually a fairly new concept, you know, with the with the whole sedentary lifestyle that people are having nowadays. It originally was described down in California, there was a pediatrician, pediatric endocrinologist who noted that a lot of kids were Develop, becoming very overweight, and they were starting to develop type 2 diabetes. At a young age. At a, a kids. very young age. We're talking p- kids under the age of 10 even, even you know around 5 years old even. And so that's where it kind of came out of. You know, We usually think about pediatrics kids, uh, patients having type 1 diabetes. And so with this new concept that obesity has been leading to this other form of diabetes, it, the term diobesity was coined from it.
0: Now, you mentioned type 1 diabetes. Usually, we talk type 2 diabetes in general because I know some of those type descriptions have kind of fallen out of out of vogue. What is the difference between the two?
1: So the simplest definition between type 1 and type 2 diabetes is type 1 diabetes is the inability of the body to produce any of its own insulin. So essentially, you need insulin to survive. Most of these patients are very thin. Um, type 2 diabetes, on the other hand, are people who produce insulin, but they're unable to produce enough insulin to get the sugar out of, their, uh, out of their blood.
0: So you can be a type 2 diabetic who uses insulin. Absolutely. But if you're a type 1 diabetic, you are definitely on insulin. Absolutely. Because you can't live without it. Exactly. And that's why people get diagnosed when they're younger, because if they have no insulin and they don't take insulin, they won't get older. Right. Essentially. Right. Okay. So that's the basic difference between type 1 and type 2. You, there's some insulin production in type 2. There's zero insulin production in type 1. So for the purposes of our discussion today, I think we'll probably be talking more about type 2. You mentioned diabetes. So it's more of a type 2 situation.
1: Exactly. It's people who are producing their own insulin. It's just they are not able to produce enough insulin to control their sugars.
0: Okay, now, so you get diabetes. A lot of people think, oh no, I got it. Okay, I'll take a bunch of pills and I'll just watch my diet and everything will be fine. Is that always the case?
1: Unfortunately, it's not so simple. Type two diabetes or just diabetes in general, the longer you have it, most people when they get diagnosed, they say, you know, I feel fine. There's nothing wrong with me. What do I need to worry about it? So my sugars are a little on the high side. The problem isn't so much right now. The issues start arising 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. You know, one of the most common, or not one of the most, the most common cause of kidney failure and dialysis in the U.S. is because of diabetes. Same thing for blindness. It's because of diabetes. So it's not something that we can just put on the side and say, oh, it's okay, I can still live a nice full life. I want to enjoy what I'm going to be doing. It's eventually it will catch up to you if it's not taken care of.
0: And part of taking care of that is working on lifestyle changes, medications if necessary, exercise, diet. Now, Dr. Robert, you work at the Queen's Comprehensive Weight Loss Center. Where do you wind up coming into play here? Because if somebody gets newly diagnosed with diabetes, they probably need to work on lifestyle changes first. When would you wind up seeing some of these individuals? And, and when you do... Or have they usually maxed out all their medication?
2: No. You know, we see patients with um, body mass index over 27, which is not even obese. That's considered overweight. So we do often catch patients early in their course of diabetes when they're taking maybe one medication or even controlling their diabetes through diet. Um, So we see the the whole spectrum. We see patients who are already on large doses of insulin, very insulin resistant to patients who've been diagnosed just months.
0: And so the goal of the Queen's Weight Loss Management Center or the Weight Management Center is really to help folks to make some better choices, start addressing it. Because, you know, weight loss isn't just, I'm not going to eat that cookie today. There's a whole different psychological component, exercise component, and all of it. So, when you see people that say, "Hey, I'm interested, I want to be part of it," I'm sure you have a team of folks who helps you Who's yes on your team. What so kind of folks are on the team
2: in our group we have um we have two uh, tr- uh trained psychologists um, we have two dietitians um we also have a surgical component for patients who are obese morbid obese um, and um so we kind of approach it as a a, a team. Um, the bariatrician focuses on the medical side of things, and that's you, yeah, Okay. Yeah. But the uh, we do tip, try and take care of any type of underlying um, emotional reason or psychological reason for um, sedentary habits and um, eating habits.
0: So, what do you find are the most Common psychological reasons for sedentary habits and eating habits. Now I know you're not the psychologist. I'm like putting you totally on the spot. Sure. But what what are the most common reasons? Is it like I just don't have time, or is there a whole other underlay or underplay of other factors that people don't initially
2: realize? Well, um, I think you know a lot of times patients we 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 run into patients who uh, spend a lot of their lives taking putting their own needs. As secondary, and they they're the kind of people who are always taking care of everyone else first. Um, That's a real common theme or 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 thread that we see. Um, The other is, um, you know, there there's a myriad of reasons patients end up um, with uh, obesity um, related to psychological. Eat, uh, eating habits like binge eating disorder, um, emotional eating, eating be- eating for boredom, eating for- because of mood, like anxiety, depression. Um.
0: But not everybody who who has issues has psychological problems. No. Okay. So some people do, some people don't. It doesn't matter. Once they enroll and decide they want to be part of this program, you will help them see whomever they – need to see to help achieve their goals. that's right so we we
2: we meet patients we we delve into all the different aspects of their their kind of journey that got them to where they are and we you know that we customize their their treatment plan based on what what they need
0: okay now they may see you after they've already seen someone like you dr. Allen when So, so I'm a primary care doc. So we're like a really good team here right now. So I'll see somebody in my office quite a bit. I may be the person who diagnoses them with diabetes. For whatever reason, we may be checking routine labs. It may be because they have some symptoms. They may just be extra tired or extra thirsty or some of those common things that would make us say, you know what, we should really check a sugar and we go along and we find out that they have diabetes. Now, I've had a couple of cases, probably just a handful in the last, you know, decade and a half or so of people who come in and their diabetes is is scary high. Like, I haven't seen numbers this high. And for those people who are familiar with that A1C number, that three-month average sugar percentage, you know, we'd like that number to be for everybody, you know, about 5.7 or less. Um, For those who have diabetes, if we can keep that number six and a half, seven or less, that would be great. I'll see people who come in, maybe just a handful with like 15, and I get scared and I call people like you, Mm -hmm. endocrinologists, and say, what do I do? But for most folks, I will see them when they're just in the early phases. And in that sort of a situation, it becomes imperative for them to learn what to do to change their lifestyle, to change their eating habits, to maybe start on medication. I usually have them see someone like yourself and a specialist if we've hit a wall, if we've tried some basic lifestyle things, can't get the numbers down, if we've tried some medications, can't get the numbers down, or if it seems like they have some other complication related to that. Along those lines, when do you generally see people with diabetes coming into the office?
1: Basically exactly how you describe When
0: I say, oh my God, go see Dr. Allen, I don't know what to do.
1: Usually it's, it's not very common for me to have a patient who comes in with an A1C under 10. Really? Usually they get sent to me when it's usually over 10. Um, I think part of that is there's this cultural component where you know a lot of primaries feel that if it's between 8 and 10 it's really not that bad because there was a time when that wasn't really it was it, there, it wasn't really sure certain what is the most ideal a1c and so a lot of people will just keep trying lifestyle changes try this medication let it go for a few months longer, and see if they can bring it down. And eventually, the numbers keep climbing up, 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 up. And when it hits the double digits, that's when most people start getting a little afraid. And they say, okay, now it's time. They definitely need to see a a specialist.
0: Okay. Do you think people should see you sooner?
1: I think there's definitely a place to come sooner, whether or not uh, they need to... um, I think if a person has not been able to turn their A1C around, get their sugars under slightly better control over a three- to six-month period, then I think it's it's acceptable to send to the specialist. If you keep seeing their numbers climbing up, it's better to get to a specialist sooner than waiting for them to build up the complications. They say that, you know, if you can if the body has memory, so if you get them under control sooner, you know, five months sooner, then you're really extending their their life at the end by maybe another five years. So it's better to kind of treat them sooner, get them under control, and prevent that long-term complication.
0: Okay. So I just, you know, I'm sort of... Open mouth, wait mm-hmm. what five months is five years now that's a point that I really want to I want to emphasize, so what you're saying is that in a newly diagnosed person with diabetes, the sooner you can get the sugars down, the better in someone who's had diabetes for four or five years, letting them sit at a range of eight eight point five nine not optimal will lead to long term complications. If you can- if they continue to have these numbers be up, may not be their fault, I mean truthfully, some people, if they're following the diet, if they're taking their medicine, if their body is deteriorating to the point where they're producing less insulin, we may need to look at more serious treatments in that sort of situation. Is it still the same that the sooner you get the numbers down, the more you extend life towards the end?
1: I think so I you think, think so? the yeah i think I think the whole thing with with diabetes is, you know, a lot of people are afraid of a lot of the medications that are out there, even including insulin. But the body needs what the body needs. So, if you're if your numbers are not going down and you're doing everything right, I I think it really discourages a lot of people. They think, well, you know, I'm eating well. I don't eat any carbohydrates. I don't drink any sodas. Don't touch the juice. And for some reason, my sugars do not go, my A1C does not drop below eight. My numbers are always in the 200s and I can't help that. So I think that's when the intensification of the medications is necessary. And it's not the person's fault. It's just that that's just what the body is asking for. So you're treating the body with what it needs.
0: And I think that's a really good point because a lot of times, you know, just today I saw a couple of folks come in and say, you know, they're doing their three- or six-month checks and it's been right after the holidays and, you know, it's March, so your numbers really include December, January, February, and they know that maybe over the holidays things got a little a little too out of control with their dietary habits. And they come in and their numbers are a little bit worse and they're... Upset and discouraged that, you know, they've let this happen, motivated to help improve it. In that sort of a situation, when you know that there is a, a an event that could lead somebody astray, would would someone need to be worried about having to start insulin if their A1C started to creep up a little bit? Or how much of a chance should we be giving folks, or should folks be giving themselves to get their numbers down? I mean... You know, I saw somebody today seven four. Prior to the holidays, they were like seven zero. So we know that the numbers went up. My thought is, hey, let's give you a little bit more time. Work on the walking, work on the exercise. Daylight's a little bit later. Let's get you back to seven where you were. And it seemed like a pretty rational thing to do. Is that rational?
1: I think that's actually not a bad idea.
0: You're I allowed think. to say it's bad. Yes, it's, that's okay. It's I not, accept that.
1: It's, but I think I think we. The, the, a lot of diabetes, when it comes to the care of diabetes, there's this, there's this very wide school of thought. Some people say no, if it's if it creeps over a certain number, that's it. You need to be treated. You need your intensification of the medication,
0: whether it be insulin or more medication. Whether it is lots of different pills out there these days. Okay, and,
1: and they'll and they may, not quite look at. Well, there was Thanksgiving. There was New Year's. There other was factors. Christmas. Okay. All these other factors that could have caused it to go up, and so they just intensify. The problem with intensifying things based on a specific situation is that you may <clears throat> you may end up leading them to have low blood sugars.
0: That's true. It is a risk. Okay.
1: So you want to you need to take into account everything that's happened and see. Well, was this a modified? Was this an avoidable thing? And if the person is really looks dedicated and they really want to get themselves under control and they were under good control, then you can give them maybe another three months and see what happens. If it creeps up any further, they need to understand that, okay, well.
3: We've
0: let this happen. Let's not lose all of those benefits of lower sugars. I think one of the keys that a lot of folks may not realize is high sugars damage nerves and arteries right now. It's not something that takes years to develop. It may take years for you to feel symptoms, but the process starts when your sugars are high in your bloodstream. Absolutely. That's when the damage starts to happen to kidneys. And you mentioned eyes, and we know cardiovascular risks, heart attacks, and strokes, that there really is an incentive to try and bring the sugars down. It's not just the cumulative effect. It's the effect today of your high sugars on your body.
1: And that's a good point. Is you know, the neuropathy, the loss of sensation in the feet and the kidneys, it's a damage that occurs, accumulates over years, and when people finally notice it, it's at the last straw. It's at the end of the line.
0: So, you know, what we're going to talk about in just a few moments is when you see somebody who's sort of getting to that point where... Their diet may not be as helpful, their exercise may not be as good as it needs to be, or maybe they just need that extra counseling component. What else can they do? And, you know, Dr. Robert, we're going to talk with you in just a moment or two about when people are sent to you. You see Dr. Allen's patients who have diabetes who want to do something different, and you see a lot of my folks who want to work on the weight loss, change the lifestyle, really figure out a way... To improve what's going on in their lives, understanding those long-term implications of what happens if they don't, and knowing that they want to avoid some of those complications. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm here in the studio with Dr. Alan Parsa, and he is an endocrinologist and medical director of the Diabetes Program at Queen's Medical Center, West Oahu, and Dr. Robert Eager, and he is the bariatrician with the Queen's Medical Center's Comprehensive Weight Management Program. And when we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk some more about what to do. So if you have diabetes, if you know you have to work on some of these issues, are there medications that can help? Are there lifestyle changes that you can do? What's the most effective way to monitor your body and figure out a way to get rid of the obesity and thus the diabetes because it actually can happen. There are ways that you can see improvements in both. Now, as always, our conversation today is your conversation. If you have a question, if you've ever been through the Queen's Weight Management Program, We'd love to hear from you what you thought were some of the good ideas, some of the things that uh, really helped you out, and your story can help somebody else along the way. So you can join us throughout our show at 941-3689, toll-free Neighbor Islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
4: What I really love to do is binge listen to programs that I can't catch because I'm working or busy running errands. So I'll come home and I'll listen to Radiolab podcasts for hours. Binge listening to Hawaii Public Radio is my guilty pleasure.
0: Member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see.
3: Maui County Council is contemplating a change to a county manager system. Next time on The Conversation, Tony Takitani, the chair of the Special Committee on County Governance, joins us, and we'll catch up with news analyst Neil Conan from The Farm. We'll talk tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation.
1: Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and today we're talking about diabetes. It's diabetes that happens because of obesity, and there are ways to treat it. And, you know, we're talking about diabetes no matter what the situation may be, but specifically type 2. We talked a little bit earlier about the difference between your body making insulin but not enough and then your body not making any at all. So we're going to focus a little bit on the more common type of diabetes where you make some insulin but just not enough. Now, today we have Dr. Alan Parsa. He's an endocrinologist at Queen's Medical Center, West Oahu, and he's been sharing with us his way to help people with diabetes give their body what it needs. That's really the key Um, because it's not just a lot of medication. It's not just a lot of exercise. It's not just never eat a carbohydrate. It's really a comprehensive approach to that whole entire metabolic picture. And at some point, some folks may want to say, what can I do to really work on weight management? And so we have Dr. Robert Eager here. He's a bariatrician with Queen's Comprehensive Weight Management Program. And they're both here in the studio. And we've been right before the break talking a little bit about diabetes management. And, you know, we're going to talk about what are some of the options if people really want to take an initiative and a step to work on their overall metabolic situation? Dr. Robert, that's often when they come in and see you. You're a bariatrician. First of all, tell me, what is a bariatrician?
2: So a bariatrician is an internal medicine physician who uh, is specialized, specializes in weight loss in adults.
0: And so it's not necessarily all surgical. It's medical. That's right. Because there's a lot of things you can do other than jumping to surgery. And you kind of have to do some things. Before surgery is an option, nobody's just—it's
2: a, a spectrum. It's a spectrum. And you so just... We have right. We have surgeons on staff, um, but you know, like we discussed earlier, we also have the entire team there. Yep, we have the dietitians, team psychologists, and surgeons. So we we kind of approach each patient a case by case basis and recommend what we think will work best for their p- particular scenario. I mean, we see patients who are obese and don't quite have diabetes. They have impaired fasting sugars. We can take those patients and with, you know, 10% weight, weight loss, or so total body weight, um, prevent the development of diabetes.
0: Just reverse the process. That's, that's Stop right. the train in its tracks. Yes. And what about somebody who has diabetes already?
2: Pa- uh, patients who have diabetes, so we, we approach it based on, uh, largely based on their BMI. So say a there's BMI, a body me, mass index, so it's, a, it's kind of a ratio of weight and height. And so say you have a patient who is classified as morbidly obese or severely obese, so a body mass index of 35 or greater, Um, if they come in with uncontrolled diabetes, um, they're going to be a much better candidate for surgical weight loss because surgical weight loss, uh, in particular the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, is the only known cure for type 2 diabetes, so you, you know, patients who have that procedure, if you look at the data based on this study, there's several studies, but the range is somewhere between 80 and 90% of those patients after surgery no have normal blood sugars and no longer need medication.
0: And, you know, before the show, we were just talking a little bit, and you mentioned that it's that specific surgery that not all surgeries do the same thing. So if we're talking about, weight loss surgery, there's laparoscopic surgery, there's band surgery, there's sleeve surgery, then there's the ruin y surgery, which has some different element to it.
2: That's right. So w- w- when you look at the gastric band procedure, which we don't do much of that anymore, it's kind of fallen out of favor, but it's a restrictive weight loss. Sure, so you try and restrict the size of the make stomach. make a small pouch of the, okay. on the stomach, it restricts the amount of food you can put in the stomach. Does not have the same effect on diabetes, so it has the same remission rate as just diet and exercise on successful its own.
0: diet and exercise. Yes. Okay,
2: the um, and then you know the the uh, the the gastric sleeve is a similar thing. So they, restrictive, it's restrictive. You take the stomach and make it this about the size of a garden hose, and it restricts the amount of food you can put in. With roux wide gastric bypass, you actually. Have both a malabsorptive component and a restrictive component, and we think that together, that's how um, uh, it's able to uh, see those results. Sure, that that are. Fixed you mentioned blood sugars.
0: fairly dramatic. I mean, it can be within 24 hours. No weight loss yet, but for whatever reason, that malabsorptive restrictive combination—that's right—and it's not to to something best. we
2: totally understand. Mm-hmm. But we do see pay, our patients after surgery. Um, you know, may be on insulin and two oral agents, and within 24 hours, not on their anything. Blood sugars are normal. Um,
0: it certainly sounds like a. a and that's the only surgery that has been shown to cure it, because we often don't hear the word type 2 diabetes and cure in the yes. same sentence, because for most other things, we haven't yet been able to cure it. That's But right. that's the only surgical procedure that has been statistically defined as a way to cure diabetes, for and whatever reason. Yeah. We're not 100% certain, but it works.
2: There's, yeah. So, and you know, the, the other procedures do improve your glycemic control or your blood sugar control, but um, to, it's... You know, the, the data shows it's inferior to the ruin Not y. as good as yeah. the Ruin-Y,
0: okay. Yeah. All right, we've got a caller on the line. We have Anne calling in from the University of Hawaii from UH. Anne, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Hello there. What can we do for you today?
3: Well, I just wanted to make a comment about about diet. Um, I have prediabetes and um, struggled uh, for many years, um, typically 20 pounds, you know, yo-yoing. And what I have found works is kind of an aversion therapy diet. I'm
0: curious. Tell me about it.
3: Well, well, you know, there's lots and lots of diets, but um, and I've tried, I think, virtually all of them. But what works is the aversion therapy, which is to publicly state something that you would actually pay a fine for if you don't make your monthly weight goal. In my case, it was to lose three pounds a month. Which is, you know, it's not undue, right? It's uh an thats undue a pretty burden.
0: sure. That's a okay. And what was yeah. your penalty?
3: The penalty was if I didn't make that goal, I would have to write a check, fifty-dollar check to Donald Trump.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would be a penalty. Uh
3: huh. Okay. And if I made my goal, then I would give ten dollars to anybody else.
0: Okay. Well, we're getting. Yeah. We're hearing all about fun things today. So, did you make your goal? Have you been writing I did. these checks? You've okay.
3: Lost seven pounds since uh, January, the middle of January.
0: So, for you, aversion therapy meaning I would much rather lose weight than lose money.
3: Right. Absolutely.
0: Okay. And and so that sort of set up. Now, who did you tell? I'm curious because you know you could um, tell yourself and then like you know right. conveniently you have tell,
3: forget. You have to state it publicly.
0: Publicly. Who is your audience? Right.
3: Oh, my workmates.
0: Your workmates held you to it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Did any of them take on the challenge? Did they say, You do it, I'll do it too?
3: No, they haven't.
0: All right. Well, shout out to them. Hey, workmates of Ann, <laughs> you too should do aversion therapy. So, you know, when you first mentioned that term, I didn't quite know what you were referring to. Like, just avoid Cheesecake Factory, <laughs> just avoid places that well, have dessert. Yes, but no. The beauty bigger issue. The beauty
3: of my diet is that I can eat whatever I want. I just have to pay the price, That's and true. I can eat whatever I want to diet. So my uh, my basically, I've been doing a kind of a semi fast, which is a green smoothie that um, that replaces one or two meals a day, and then I eat whatever I want for the for the last meal.
0: And it's worked for you.
3: Yeah. That and I mean, exercise, I exercise, and um, but you know, if there wasn't the incentive,
0: that's true. So, that's true. Yeah,
3: carrot. So mine was a carrot and a stick. So you did a <laughs> combo of both. Okay. Well,
0: and that's awesome. It worked for you, and I, <laughs> I love the fact that you mentioned a couple of things, a couple of elements to what you said. The first thing is publicly. So I think that's a really important thing for somebody to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to meet with you know myself and walk around the park is not as effective as I'm going to say to somebody else, I'll meet you, so you kind of become sort of responsible to make sure you're there with another person. The second thing I loved is you mentioned that combination, and I'm sure you see, Dr. Robert, you see people who need to do both, and Dr. Allen yourself. It's not just about what you don't eat. It's also about the caloric expenditure when you do exercise mm-hmm. and you do activity. If you were to think about, and I'm going to put you both on the spot and and. and You can hate me later. Uh, But, you know, Anne publicly stated things, too. So if you were to say which is more important, diet or exercise, granted, this is different for different people. I think if you have diabetes, it's different than if you don't. If you have high cholesterol, it's different than if you don't. Do you think it's a 50-50 percent? Is it more of a 60-40? You know, what are your thoughts? Dr. Robert? Uh,
2: I want to go back just for a second to talk about Ann's diet because there is a, a critical flaw in that diet is that for her to maintain her weight loss, Donald Trump has to live for as long as she wants to lose weight. So, <laughs> okay,
0: there is a
3: flaw. So
0: you I, I never think, know.
2: I think okay. it's, you know, we, we, whatever works is, you know, that, that's great. But I, I think, you know, what we try to find in our clinic is we try to match people's diet with what their body needs.
0: Okay, okay. how do you figure that out?
2: So, you know, what we usually do, right, once we figure out what a patient wants, is we have them come back and we calculate out or we measure, indirectly measure their resting metabolic rate.
0: So, that's how many calories doing no exercise mm-hmm. do they burn in a day?
2: And that gives us an idea of what their overall daily budget should be so that they're not cutting too many calories. And we can give them a target of how much exercise they need to do. So you're right. It's a combination of both. It, one on its own does not work. I can consume over 2,000 calories in about 15 minutes or less.
0: What are you eating? And,
2: but you can. I mean, if you look at it, you can, you can, into to, you know, that's, that's, depending on how vigorous, that's four to eight hours of exercise to so burn it off. what
0: is the average Caloric expenditure of most people. I mean, I realize that it's going to be different for so many different factors, but on average, you know, are people burning just living, going about their lives like a 1, 1,200 calories a day? Is that like an average, or is that just totally grossly too high?
2: Um. Well, as far as like ex extra exercise, um, usually it's more like uh, one to three hundred calories, depending on how much you do.
0: So just your basic metabolic rate your basic no metab- exercise burns how many calories a day?
2: For most people, um it really well, it it's a it's a range, somewhere between one and two thousand calories. One to
0: two thousand. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not that far off. No I was on the low depressing range. Yeah. And then when you go to the gym and you get on the equipment and you're like, Oh my god, I must have burned a gazillion calories and you see like forty, that tells you about how many calories you burn during exercise. Yes. Okay, so an average hour of walking, let's say, not not like super intensity, just oh, I'm going to walk around for an hour. How many extra calories are you burning doing that?
2: An hour um, leisurely walking, maybe 200 if you're lucky.
0: Okay, so yeah. 200 calories. What if something is chasing you and you're actually doing a jog?
2: So more like uh, 400 or 500 calories. Okay. And, if you and run then those and really
0: fast runner people?
2: 800 calories.
0: So... Depending on what your activity is, you could almost double your basic metabolic rate if you're doing vigorous activity every day
2: you well so there there were a couple no, of I'm studies that, you're recently came all out of that but okay. about exercise and and what what you know what intensity really does for you is it, it allows you to contract the amount of time you put into exercise so
0: so faster
2: faster you means can go shorter shorter yeah
0: but if you were to go Faster and longer, then you're burning more. Yes. Most yeah. people might not rigorously run for an hour, although I know a few who could. <laughs> and yet they might rigorously run for 20 minutes or walk for an hour. Right. So in the end, the walk for an hour, rigorously run, could wind up being about the same amount of calories. That's right. Okay. So it sounds like, Dr. Allen, that, you know, if you say, oh, let me just eat those three cookies after lunch. You could have just, in order to just stay at the same body weight, committed yourself to an hour or more of exercise.
1: That basically sounds about right.
0: It kind of makes that cookie not taste so good after you think about it, hopefully before you've eaten it.
1: That is true. The other thing you need to realize also, you know, to kind of go with that same question of exercise versus diet is... What do most – you have to ask yourself, what do most people do after they exercise? They usually get hungry and they go eat. So, yeah, why? So, well, I mean, they get hungry. They just feel like they burned off all these calories. They need to put calories back in and build themselves up again. Um, I'm not sure what the actual physiology behind it is. But you need to be careful because, it's as you know, was said, it's very easy to put in high calories into your, into your meal. So if you burned off 800 calories doing an intensive workout and you put on 1,000 calories, you really actually put on more calories than you took off. So in that sense, um, what I usually tell people to do is to start restricting their calories in their diet. If they eat two scoops of rice, maybe eat only one scoop of rice with their meal. And that, in this, in essence, is cutting down their calories. If they're still hungry, you can eat all the veggies that you want because those are low-carb foods. Um, and by doing that, the body kind of starts adapting to eating less. So when you go and start exercising, you're burning all those calories that you work so hard to burn off. Then hopefully at the end when you're done, you're not going to go running to that, you know, the whatever meal, store. the ice cream sandwich okay. and everything to put the weight back on.
0: Gotcha. So, you need to train your body to to eat less. Does your stomach actually shrink? No. No. <laughs> so that whole fallacy of, you know, hey, I'm just going to just, you know, I haven't uh, yeah. been overeating, I'm just going to shrink my stomach and then I won't be hungry. That's like a fallacy. That
2: is a fallacy and just to add Okay. After me. you've had bariatric surgery, your stomach does not expand. Really? So that let's put that myth to bed. <laughs>
0: okay. That's a myth that I still believe in. We need to myth bust me. So you've had gastric surgery. Your stomach is super tiny. What happens to those people who gain the weight back? Are they just eating the equivalent of 50 ping pong ball-sized meals a day?
2: Yes. It takes practice. Okay, It It takes some effort to do that. It does. And your body, I mean, if you think about your your body, your body wants to find an equilibrium. It wants, it gets, you. bypass is a trick. It's a trick to the body, just like medicine and other things. Your body wants to go back to the way it was. And if you allow it, it will. Um, But you have to work hard.
0: And that's why they say, you know, you have this window of opportunity. I've had a couple of gastric bypass surgeons on, and they talk about this window of opportunity where if you don't work on the weight loss in the first six months to a year, you're probably never going to see it. If you do surgical, surgical treatments for for weight loss. If you do it and you don't lose the weight early, you're not going to see five years later a super gain um, improvement, I'm going to well, say, not gain. You know,
2: that, that's... that's kind of an oversimplification because we do have patients who have had gastric bypass surgery uh, other places and come into our program after regaining the weight. If you put them on a diet that balances what they need, they can lose the weight again. And we have patients who lose weight after they've regained the weight. And so, you know, yes, I think if you look at the data you're going to see that, you know, the first two years are kind of the honeymoon period for gastric bypass, and that's when you do your best. Um, but there is a large percent of the patients who keep the weight off. And, um, you know, if, if you regain the weight, you still can lose it. You're not going to go do another surgery. That's final. But you, um, your stomach is still small, and so you still have the capability of, of getting the weight off.
0: All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Here in The Body Show, we are talking about diabetes, and we're talking about various realistic ways to lose weight. We heard from one person who, who basically, aversion therapy, she has to write checks to people that she doesn't clearly want to write checks to if she doesn't lose the weight and gets to give it to anybody else in the world if she does. I still think, Anne, you're losing money no matter what you do, but good work because if you're also losing weight, that's excellent. Um, We have Dr. Alan Parsa in the studio. He is an endocrinologist at Queens Medical Center, West Oahu. We also have Dr. Robert Eager, bariatrician with the Queens Comprehensive Weight Management Program. And they're both here in the studio. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the other challenges for people who have diabetes, who also want to consider the weight management program. What are some of the aspects of their care that they need to consider? Now, as always this is your show as well and if you've ever been in the queen's weight management program or really any weight management program and you found something that works for you we'd love to hear what your secret was and maybe that might help someone else along the way you can join us at 941-3689 toll free 877-941-3689 we'll be right back stay with us
2: whiskey. Quite nice in moderation. Probably not, though, the best new business venture. When people call me, uh, the first thing I say out the door is, if you get your distillery open in two years, I'll fly out and take you out to dinner. I'm Kai Rizdal. The latest in our series I've Always Wondered, next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following the Body Show.
3: Growing up in West Virginia, Jane Ann Phillips heard stories about women who were preyed upon by a murderer in the 1930s.
5: The idea of matrimonial agencies and a predator reaching middle-aged widows.
3: And that gave birth to Jane Ann Phillips' fifth novel, Quiet Dell. She reads from this creative fusion of fact and fiction on the next New Letters on the Air.
1: Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. We are talking about diabetes. What can you do if you have diabetes because you're obese? And what are some of the treatments out there available? We've got Dr. Alan Parsa, endocrinologist, medical director of the diabetes program, Queens Medical Center, West Oahu. Dr. Robert Eager, bariatrician at Queens Medical Center's comprehensive weight management program. And we have a caller on the line. We have Mike calling in from Connie Mike, we're talking about diabetes and weight loss. And it's not all that mythical and magical and all sorts of things we're learning today. What can we do for you?
4: Well, I just wanted to follow up on the uh, other caller, uh, her use of aversion therapy. Okay. Uh, And, you know, the comment about, of course, Donald Trump will not be around to be of value. But there's always the next, uh, you know, you can pick an agency or organization. Uh, If you're a sports fan, you can pick, you know, the most big common competitors with UH or something. Uh, but I, I, for example, <laughs> I, I encourage people to, you know, pick an organization, in fact that they really do not respect and would, the last thing they want to do is contribute money to it. Because uh, that, that, again, you don't want to just do the aversive stuff. You want the positive reinforcement and all the things you, you guys are talking about. But that really has helped. Uh, I, I'm a psychologist, and I've used that when I've worked with folks in that situation, or many situations in terms of just weight control. Uh, and it, but the key thing, like I mean, this will sound rather far, far off, but uh, a person that's uh, identified the American Nazi Party as an you know, organization that they would, the last persons in the world they'd want to contribute to, and it does it, it it helps. Now the other part, in terms of what to do with the money if she uh, if the person succeeds, it is good to uh, use it to sort of reward your support system. You know, like take your your good friends to the movies, the ones that are encouraging you and supporting what you're doing, or the ones that go exercising with you, whatever. Anyway, I just wanted to, didn't want to leave that uh, thing about Trump as a, well, maybe that doesn't work. It, it's a very uh, strong asset to add to a pro when you're trying to help people stick with it. You know, that's all. That's basically what I...
0: All right, Mike, wanted. I got to tell you, I think the uh, the idea about the sports team you don't like, I have to say, it's kind of... Ironic, you mentioned that my mother is a is a vigorous basketball fan, and this weekend she had a chance to go see the Villanova and Georgetown game, and my uncle is a huge Georgetown fan, and so you know the fact that Villanova won made my mother happy um she probably would never have wanted to help out that Georgetown team, so I like the idea of the sports the sports idea you know the team that you don't like because we know that people would use money like that hopefully towards good things like scholarships for students or something positive. You know, even if it's not the team that you like, it's still going to do somebody some good. And, you know, that's that's a great analogy. Plus, you know, sports teams usually outlive us. And so they've been around and will be around for hopefully 50, 100 years or so. And whereas a private individual may not be that long, you never know. Um, but I like the idea. And you mentioned the positive association. And that's that's a great A great way to look at it, you know, if you think, hey, I've got a support network of people who keep me accountable to eat salad at lunch and exercise after work. You guys could all go to a movie and maybe not binge on popcorn. That's probably not a good plan because you're about to sit at the movies. There's not a lot of exercise involved, Um, but things that you could do that would really just kind of help you with. The positive motivation you know the other thing that some people might do is put that money towards a trip they want to take or clothes they want to buy that if they lose weight they'll look better in or something that'll give them that kind of carrot and I love Dan's approach carrot and a stick just have it together Um, you never know it might be more effective than either or now you know I'm curious dr. Allen you see people who have diabetes a lot do you find that after their a1c is high for quite a long time does it just get them emotionally just so discouraged that they just, they have to keep adding more medicine and adding more concoctions? And do you see that psychological component to what's going on with them with their diabetes? And how do you help them to overcome it?
1: There's definitely two sides to that. There are the patients who come in with the A1C, that's, you know, 15, 18, 20, and they are just, done with it. They just don't care. That's why they've gotten so out of control. They just said, "You know, I can't get it down. What's the point? Why bother with it?" And a lot of times to get them to come down, it's just it sometimes it involves a lot of hand-holding and, you know, some TLC. And they need to, once they start understanding what the ultimate goal is, why things are being done, they tend to start listening. It's all about baby steps. You don't need to get these patients down from 15, A1C of 15, so an average sugar of, you know, in the 400s, down to an average sugar of in the 100s right away. You can slowly bring them down. Um, a lot of times they see physicians who say, okay, well, you have, you're so out of control, you need to be on five injections a day, plus a, you need to check your sugars another six, seven times a day. And it's too overwhelming for a lot of people.
0: I think that would be too overwhelming for any medical problem. Checking it six times a day, taking five injections.
1: Yeah, especially especially if you've never done any of and that before.
0: Sure, absolutely. So what when you say baby steps, if you had somebody whose A one C was let's just let's say not fifteen, let's say like ten or eleven, how realistic would it be or how low do you think they should be able to get that within six months and within a year?
1: Again, it depends on the person that you're treating. I have some patients, you know, one of the questions I always ask the patient or a person is, you know, how badly do you want to get your sugars under control? How dedicated are you going to be to this now? Uh, If the answer is, I am ready, I'll do whatever it takes, you can get their sugars under control within four or five weeks. It doesn't take months to do it. And then again, if you have patients who are people who are not so keen on just jumping into everything, they, they want it, they're dedicated to get their sugars under control, but they don't necessarily want to get the kitchen sink, per se, thrown at them, then it may take four or five months to get them under control. Again, it completely depends on the person's dedication to it. Some people, they'll just get it down to a certain level, and they won't really get any lower than that. But that's okay. The whole idea is to get them as close to goal as possible um, to minimize their risks.
0: Of all those secondary complications we talked about. Okay. Exactly. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We have Aya from Kaneohe. Aya, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. How are you? Good. How about yourself?
5: I'm well, thank you.
0: Um, I
5: just wanted to share my – I've lost a lot of weight over the years. Um, uh, The first being 75 pounds through Weight Watchers when I was younger – And um, then the most recent, about five years ago, I lost about 45 pounds just on my own. I went back to Weight Watchers, but I just didn't feel that maybe their program would necessarily work for me. So, and I did this in about five months, and I just wanted to share my story because it could be helpful for some people because it was really good because I did it very in a healthily kind of way.
0: Sure. What did you wind up doing?
5: So I did a three-day cleanse, which was mainly like the master cleanse. but I had soup broth and stuff like that, and that was just for three days. And I felt like that kind of purged my body of all of the processed foods. And then I switched my diet mainly to raw foods during the week. And then on the weekends, I could, you know, kind of eat whatever I wanted within reason. Um, And then I exercised, like, I stay about four times a week, like swimming or yoga.
0: So Um, really working on the exercise and dietary component together, incorporating both of them And you were able to see the weight loss goals that you had set for yourself actually happen.
5: Yeah, very quickly. And I'm in my mid-40s, so I actually assumed that I wouldn't be able to lose weight quickly and I wouldn't have the same results that I had had in my late 20s. And the complete opposite, I actually feel better and probably healthier just because I cut processed foods. So have I do you... dabble once in a bit, but just not during the week, I kind of try to maintain. So
0: you've really kept it. You've been keeping the raw foods, avoiding the processed foods. That's a right. dietary change that you can kind of keep up with.
5: Right. For the most part. I mean, once in a while, you know, I'll go for some pizza or have some, you know, some stuff. <laughs> but, you know, I do. For, I'd say I, use, I usually use a, a um, fraction of like 70% of the time I do raw foods
0: okay, so you're really trying hard to maintain the dietary changes you made, keep up with the exercise, and you, you, this is a realistic, reasonable thing for you to continue.
5: Right. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Well, that's really helpful. I think a lot of people will definitely be able to get motivated by just hearing that, hey, listen, here you are, you know, you're in your mid 40s. Everybody says it's so hard. It'll never happen. And yet you made the commitment, made some realistic changes that you think you can keep with and saw some benefit. You know, Dr. Robert, this is a combination of dietary changes and exercise and dietary changes that for are sustainable. Is that one of the keys? You know, when you see people who are part of the weight management program, and you probably hear a lot about different diets that they've tried, this, that, and the other thing, is is the biggest problem usually that whatever the dietary changes, it just isn't something they can sustain and keep up with and eventually wind up going back to gaining the weight again?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I love that story, and I appreciate the caller for making that point. It's... um. You cannot have long-term success um, if you cannot do it every day. And so, what we see is, you know, patients will have these periods. Like they'll go to Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, that sort of thing, and you ha- you're in a program and you lose weight. But what happens three months later? Well, the weight starts trickling back. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a flaw in those types of diet. Um, And it sounds like, you know, our last caller found a way to balance. It didn't sound like she was doing an extreme amount of exercise. Yoga, Um,
0: swimming. There you go.
2: She wasn't doing anything that she couldn't tolerate in her diet and uh, found that balance. And I I think we can we all have that capability. Um, You know, there's not. Um, there 's not just one particular cleanse or one particular way to eat your food that will allow you to maintain weight loss there 's many and It is a good approach to avoid processed foods it 's a good approach to eat fresh, healthy foods you know that's the same principles are in the dash diet, which is a a very well accepted diet um, you know developed nat- by the National Institute of Health and validated diet it 's same principles fresh. Foods, avoid processed foods, limit sugar, fat, and salt.
0: It sounds so simple, and yet it doesn't seem that simple. Do, is, we make, do we make too much of it?
2: Yes. It is simple. It's hard to do. It's, but it is simple. There's three simple things that you need to do to maintain your weight. Okay. Be more active, eat a diet that, balance, that matches what your body needs, and sleep.
0: I like that third one. (laughs) I'm game with that.
2: You do those three things and you can maintain your weight.
0: So why did you say sleep? I'm curious.
2: Well, you know, sleep is is one of the principles to weight loss. So, uh, you know, people who get less than on average, like particularly in females, um, if you are getting less than five to six hours of sleep at night, you are more than likely going to be about 30 pounds heavier than your well-rested counterpart. And um, we know that sleep deprivation um, leads to weight gain. We know that people who have to work overnight and have poor sleep habits generally have a higher body mass index than just somebody who's not working overnight. Um, so it, it it plays a role. Um, we used to think that it had to do with hormone levels like leptin and ghrelin. I, that hasn't really been validated. It, it We think it probably has more uh, to do with the window of opportunity so you are awake longer and you can consume calories for a longer period of time
0: so the longer you're awake the longer you can eat the next time you have a craving go to bed <laughs> <laughs> i mean like you know it sounds silly but it's part of it it actually yeah. might work yeah you know, it's interesting because I think the CDC just uh, released a study that showed that there are healthier occupations than others. And some of the occupations that were not as healthy were the ones where you're up all night working all night long, like night shift they thought was not as healthy, sedentary jobs not as healthy, service professions not as healthy, which I found quite interesting. I don't know if that's because of a stress issue or maybe a sedentary issue or, you know, I mean, we all could technically be in service positions. It's, it's an interesting phenomena. but we are now, I think, beginning to understand the importance of how your body needs to be rested. And, you know, we talk about, and we've had a couple of shows on before, about sleep apnea. Why does sleep apnea increase the likelihood of someone getting diabetes and we think or having their diabetes more difficult to treat we think it has something to do with that restorative function of the body that you're getting something beneficial when you're resting that you're not getting if you're up all the time and whether it be cortisol levels or stress hormones or whatever that system is you need some more sleep it's actually if you need to do anything for yourself getting better rest is going to help you to exercise more is going to help you to be more motivated with your diet, hopefully. Um, and it's it's going to help perpetuate itself. It's really one of those, that third thing that I think a lot of people overlook.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, and when you think about obesity, obesity is a, a obstructive sleep apnea is an obesity-related disease. Sure. A,
0: a sleep apnea where you just have such a large neck or collapse of the airways, and then it causes problems and... Then you don't. So you it don't is. Get it's kind roast. of
2: a it's kind of a chicken and egg kind of conversation. Um, it, it's all tied to, together, and I th- I think you know the main the, the one the one thing that holds it all together is obesity.
0: And so working on that will help you with the diabetes, with the blood pressure, with the cholesterol, with the risk factors, with everything else. All right. Now, if people were interested in the Queen's weight managed comprehensive weight management program. How do they get information?
2: Um, so we are on the internet. Um, so if you Google Queen's Comprehensive Weight Management, um, we are also, we have a Facebook page. Um, you can look us up um, on the internet, give us a call, um, and we'll get you started on your your path to a healthier life.
0: Fabulous. Do you need to get referred by your
2: doctor? If you are um if you're pr- interested in pursuing surgical weight loss then you probably do. Yes, and um you know so we usually do communicate with your primary doctor.
0: Okay, and non-surgical weight loss, you've got some time, you can actually go ahead and self-refer?
2: Um it depends on your insurance a lot of t- um but you know that's that's kind of the, just call us and we'll sort we'll that out. We'll figure it out.
0: <laughs> so don't worry about the logistics. That's okay, right. we'll figure out a way. To fix it. Okay. And, and and Dr. Allen, for people who are concerned about their diabetes, I always find it refreshing when I see a person who says, can I see a specialist to help me work on this even more intensely than I do now? I love that. and And we need more of you. Just clone yourself because then we can have more people who can help people with that intensive therapy. Is there any person who you think absolutely should see an endocrinologist and should not just be waiting around? Those double-digit A1Cs for like the a year or double two?
1: Double-digit A1Cs for sure. Well, anybody whose A1Cs are continually creeping up. Okay. I mean, you don't need to wait for it to be double-digit before you get referred over to a specialist. If it's, you know, if it's gone from 7 to 7.5 to 8 and it's just not coming back down, then a specialist might be needed.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us today. We're going to definitely have to do this again and talk some more. If you want to hear the show again, you can click on our podcast. Our engineer is David Chong, executive producer, Beth Ann Koslovich. See you next week right here on The Body Show.